All right, we are live. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Break the Rules stream. Today, we are sowing discourse with John Stokes, the founder of Ars Technica, co-founder of Ars Technica, uh, entrepreneur, working in uh, media, in technology, in self-defense, in uh, preparing for disaster. A lot of things that I hold really close to my heart, and I really appreciate you coming up uh, here today to uh, speak with us about this. And by this, I mean all of the above. And we are also joined with Catherine Brodsky, and we are joined by my main man, Giovanni Panacchietti. Bella, bella. And uh, let us start off by talking about what exactly brought you into the world of technology to begin with. What was the inspiration? Let's just start with that and subscribe, all new people. Welcome, everybody, from Clubhouse. Anyway, let's go for it. Uh, can you guys hear me okay? With I, I just switched up my audio. Uh, so, it's a little bit quieter than usual, so I would recommend having it a little bit closer. Back. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Well, let me. I'll go back to the other. No hey. problem at all. And guys, I just want to say that we have started a clubhouse uh, club. I don't know what else to call it for uh, break the rules. So I would recommend that you would go there right now. I'm going to be putting it in the chat for those who not have clubhouse. Get it become part of this thing because we are growing something really special here. So anyway, John, my friend, uh, go for it. Let us know what inspired you to go into the world of technology. Take it away. Yeah, I guess I'm, am I, am I, is my audio better now? Oh yeah. It is. Good. Yes. Okay. All right. All right. I'll just stick with this. I'll just stick with the MacBook. Um, yeah. You know, I, uh, I got a hand me down Commodore like 128 from my uncle uh, when I was probably about nine. And I started, uh, it came with, you know, the basic uh, programming manual. And I started on that doing basic, you know, writing small games. And then I figured out how to work the serial port and, you know, all the other kind of stuff. So, um, so yeah, I got into tech, you know, that way uh, and, and was, was kind of there for the rise of the IBM PC and the, the 8086. And uh, in undergrad, I did uh, computer engineering and I got to do some assembler and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and mostly hardware. So even when I went to grad school, I did uh, dead languages and ancient history, but I started ours on the side with some other people and I kind of kept one foot in the world of computing and internet stuff. So, so I've kind of, um, you know, been into tech pretty much since I was a, a little kid. And I want to touch on history as well later on, but just real quick, what type of history were you studying? So I was doing um, ancient, like Christianity and Second Temple Judaism, so Christian origins, and I was focused a little bit on um, Second Temple Jewish apocalypticism, um, but then I switched over into more of like, um, I to, to just nerd out, I guess you would say middle platonic readings of Semitic creation myths. And so guys like Plutarch were reading mm. the Egyptians and trying to read Plato back into the Egyptians. And then guys like um, Philo were reading Genesis and trying to read Plato back into Genesis. And so what I about uh, Plotinus? Was Plotinus also involved in uh, that kind of reading? Because people were recommending based on my meditations and various uh, things of that nature to look into Plotinus. Yeah, you know, I wasn't um, I wasn't super heavy into a lot of the a lot of the Greek philosophers. Mostly, it was like Plato, Aristotle, and then the Middle Platonists. So the kind of reception history of Plato, mm. um, and mm. and it's been, man, you know, 
10, 15 years since, since I was into that. Um, although I'm revisiting it a little bit for my newsletter in, in an upcoming edition, that's going to be kind of fun. But. Excellent. So uh, getting back to the main subject at hand here, which is what exactly we are going to be facing with the advent of this new, as we were talking about in Clubhouse, you know, the sensocracy or technocracy or whatever you want to call it. Do you perceive a big difference? The cathedral, love. The The cathedral, cathedral. yes. Do you perceive a big difference in how people have acted when you first got into the world of tech and the way that they are acting now? And do you see technology as affecting, you know, this difference, if you perceive a difference in the way that people are acting? Yeah, I kind of have this sort of um, weird, like, unified theory of this stuff. I mean, when I... So we started Ars Technica in, in 1998. Somebody's mentioned the audio. I don't know if I should um, move closer or... Um, <coughs> I don't but, know. The audio seems good to me. I didn't really yeah, change anything. Great. Yeah. Okay. So, so we started Ars Technica in 98, and I, I went to um, Comdex that first year. That was before CES, there was Comdex. And, and Comdex was a PC and you know hardware kind of like personal computing thing. And then as microchips begin to make their way into more, um, more products, it, you know, Comdex gave way to CES. And CES, like, you know, you would go one year and it's still pretty PC-centric, laptops, monitors, peripherals. And then you end up with, um, oh, is uh, somebody telling me to yell into the mic? I don't know. Ignore Bruce. I'm going to get to the bottom of whether there is an audio problem or whether this is just one person. Almost unlistenable. Oh, okay. I think Bruce may be trolling us right now. So anybody but Bruce Boxtrotter, let us know. Is there something going on with the audio? Because I did not uh, change anything whatsoever on the stream when it comes to the audio. So- I think Bruce is trolling. Well, I'm I'm listening a bit on the simul. On, on there, there we go. Benjamin, Benjamin Life says, I can hear everything great, including the keyboard typing. So, yes, oh. <laughs> Bruce Buff, I love you, but you're confusing everybody. So shut up. Anyway, uh, John, <laughs> keep going. Um, yeah, so so CES grew and it expanded and it and it began to include cars and toasters and blenders and, you know, all all, all manner of things. And. And this kind of fits with the whole Mark Andreessen software is eating the world, you know, thesis. And, you know, that's generally correct. I mean, as, micro, as microchips go into more things, software eats that thing. So um, I covered the year that software ate the voting system, which was, you know, 2006 with the, that first election just previously to help America vote act had been passed. And that was when software ate voting and we're just now seeing the um the repercussions of that 2016 right so i have a corollary to the software is eating the world where um that basically says in every area and every new thing that software eats there is one question that all the fights boil down to and that is who has root um and and this is like sort of a i mean it's less abstract than it sounds like when software eats voting who has root, you know, do the Russians have root? Um, does the voting machine company have root? Um, so that's that's essentially the only um, the only question that all fights reduce to 
in every regime. It, now, lately, it's an AI. Um, the question of AI, as I'm trying to develop on my Substack, is who is going to have root? Um, who is, is there going to be a sideband that can control and steer these large models? Are we going to tweak the data sets? Who's going to structure it? Who has that privileged access to make this work, to, to create, read, update, and delete? Um, so, so that to me is the, my, like kind of my meta on how every, on how uh, when software gobbles up a new like area of human experience, it changes in predictable ways. That's also why I think that the, that the blockchain stuff is really interesting because of course nobody has root. Um, and it's not possible to, to delete. You know, you can't, and, and that, that is actually, that's actually the sing, that's actually the signal quality of a root. It's not just that, that root can read, but root can write, you know, root can like update, root can delete. And on something like the blockchain, nobody is able to delete from the distributed ledger. And like, you know, it costs a lot of energy and a lot of math for us to take computers back to the point where we can make something that you can't delete. Um, but now that we're there, um, I think that that's, that's going to be the thing that's really important. I, uh, I uh, think so, too. When it comes to this advent of blockchain, there are a lot of people who are very ecstatic about it. But then there are others who worry that uh, even if there are going to be these decentralized things that would enable people to have communications like we're having right now, uh, the they'll be stamped down before they have a chance to grow by a possible growing power right now, which may be taking over people's lives, even if they're not so much aware of it. Like we were talking before about, uh, you know, engineers at Google and whatnot, and uh, whether the kind of programs that they're setting up right now, along with the kind of mindset that they have when it comes to life, like if you have an interview or take a poll from people who are in college right now in areas like California and New York. From what I understand, uh, free speech is not that much up on their list. So that is the other thing that I'm kind of worried about when it comes to how much power these tech firms will have to squash even the possibility of something like blockchain rising up, as well as working together with governments to make sure of that. And uh, what would be a way to uh, make sure that that doesn't happen? Yeah, you know, I don't know. I think it's, I think, I guess the, I, I have a different, my take on it is a little more cyclical. You know, you, you've heard of Sutherland's wheel of reincarnation, right? So yes. um, the, 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 the GPU just kind of moves on and off the CPU, you know, depending on like what stage of, of hardware development we're at, right? Um, you know, it's integrated, then it goes back onto the motherboard, then it gets integrated, it back, at least I think I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I'm recalling it right. The lesson that I'm that I'm drawing here, though, is that like a lot of problem solution pairs reproduce themselves at different layers of the stack and in different times and in different places. So you know you get um, thin client versus fat client. Um, that that's not a, a thing that we went through just once. Like it's it we went through it multiple times. Like with the Chromebook and the web browser and you know, things that went back out to fat client, then they went back to thin client in certain areas. Um, mainframe computing, uh, I, I think in in machine learning is it's in a little bit of a mainframe era because to use really large models like GPT-3, 
GPT-3 cost, I think by some estimates, four and a half million just to train that model. And of course it costs millions every year to run it in resources. That's a mainframe. Um, they're charging metered access to it by, you know, in units of thousands of tokens. And there are only a few models that are that large. Um, before, before you had these big mega models in AI, you had clouds, you know, a cloud is kind of a type of mainframe in a certain way. Like there are a few large ones and people pay on a metered and a metered way to access them. So I, I, my meta point is that like, when it comes to these fights over access, over Liberty, over, um, over who has root, this kind of stuff. I, I think the key is to just look at different problem solution pairs that cropped up in the past and try to think through how they manifest or how they could manifest in some new regime of like scale or some new temporal context. Well, affording it could be a big for you, but go ahead. Well, affor affording certain things, I think, uh, will be one of the harder questions to solve where, like I was talking before in Clubhouse, this is an advertisement for Clubhouse every time I mention it. But anyway, I was talking about how people have this assumption that the free market is going to solve it and maybe they're right. But if you cannot afford certain things like a solid infrastructure uh, or even having a bank that would be able to uh, process things for you, you know, because now like Geo, you could talk a little bit about this as far as how much are people denied today, you know, who go against a certain uh, certain narrative, even something as basic as uh, banking. And here we're talking about money for uh, servers, money to be able to support something in light of a potential uh, you know, technocracy that would look disfavorably towards your ideas. So, Gio, take it away, brother. Let me know what you think. What, what did you want me to... Uh... I uh, I would love for you to talk about just well, yeah, what I... your your impression of what you're seeing right now with the censorship. That that would be like a basic uh, thing. Well, I think, like, it, it's it's hard to say because, like, I, I wrote in this article, as you know, that it's, it's um, the coordinated effort of you know, tech companies and social media companies, it's, it's not necessarily, um, it's not necessarily a conspiratorial framework. It's more of just the result of like using certain features of, um, controlling the algorithms of performance on those platforms. Like for example, the recent ban wave on Twitter, I truly believe that that probably was an algorithm bomb of some sorts where if you tweeted out certain things, or if you tweeted out like articles that had the quote unquote misinformation pop up, then they got to the point now where they'll just get rid of you. But I think the coordinated effort of social media companies to work in tandem to basically unperson people from what I consider to be the public square, which is the internet, um, is is starting to affect real world outcomes. And I think that we're, we have to examine why that is, why it tends to be that people within tech have a similar mindset about things. And also what it means in terms of the attitudes to technology and the internet itself, because it seems that the the sort of um, the early internet, like the memification of even using it is gone or it should be gone where people say, well, you know, it's the meme, the internet's serious business. It doesn't matter <laughs> in terms of real life. But now that everyone basically is inside for some degree of time, especially with what's happening nowadays in the, around the world, you know, with the certain event that we can't stop hearing about, you know what I mean? Um, then it seems that the real is slowly being consumed by the hyper real. And now that we, we can no longer deny the reality that the vast majority of 
interactions people have are happening in online spaces. But then it's the question of to treat certain subjects as being um, unruly or ungovernable and then getting rid of them. You know, they'll come back with alternative accounts, but it's never the same, right? But yeah. to treat, to sort of like, you know, to bar whole demographics based on, you know, sort of metrics of civility that's, and then using things like, uh, you know, machine learning algorithms to detect like who is going to be uh, unruly. I think that is sort of like a question of what what it truly means in terms of uh and, and you know there and I, this is not a new thing like there's people like uh mcchesney who talk about like how you know you know social media companies are like getting rid of democracy or something like that but to me there's something more nuanced going on it's just i don't know as, as someone who is i guess at least partially skeptical of technology i think it's kind of um it's it's interesting how you know a lot of these like uh, algorithms are starting to you know they're starting to really even coordinate or or uh, corral behavior in certain ways you know but then that's the nature i guess i mean a fabulation in general in the social media age so that's you know is it human nature or is it the platforms themselves are designed in a certain way to have specific forms of engagement so well i would love to get that question uh from a, or an answer to that question from john and then i want to go to indian bronson who is also joining us right now can we hear you indian by the way i just want to make sure your audio works yeah, i think I, you, you can hear me i'm just on excellent excellent okay and then i want to excellent, talk about brother. self and then I want to talk about self-defense, uh, and uh, we have uh, Brian O'Shea, SPI, a military vet, private investigator, uh, so uh, that would be a really interesting discussion as well. Self-defense situation, Lev. I mean Absolutely, yes. So anyway, let's, uh, let's go back you to John. You forgot to mention pastry chef. Oh, that's right, pastry <laughs> chef. Yummy, yummy, yummy. So let's, let's get back to John right that's now. That's what John. I'm really interested in. Well, we'll get there. We'll get there eventually. So, John, I'm curious uh, what you think about whether it is human nature or whether it's the algorithm, a bit of both. And it reminds me a bit of the post that you did, which I'm also going to link. Please follow John's Substack, by the way. He has a, he has a wonderful Substack, and uh, this one is called Google's Coliseum, Some Thoughts on Compression, Power, and Loss. I'm going to link that, but uh, let me know what you think of uh, what uh, Gio was talking about. Which one is it? Is it human nature? Is it coding? Is it both? Oh, you got to mute yourself. Yeah, there we okay. go. It's, it's yelling at me. Um, um, yeah, I, it's interesting. I um, I guess the way that I think about these things is that um, these these large, anything that's sufficiently big, um, any tech that's sufficiently big and networked and reaches enough people, um, the mental model that I use is leverage, like in the financial system. Um, and, you know, are also just leverage, like physical leverage. So a sufficiently big piece is like a, a sufficiently large piece of tech is like having a really long lever and being able to stand in a certain, you know, I think as Archimedes, it's like, give me a long enough lever and a place to stand, I can move the world. And, and that's what um, a globe spanning cloud um, uh, architecture, like what Google has, or what Facebook has, if you think of that as a lever, then you can imagine that um, a few people in a room that are making moderation decisions can move the entire globe uh, with that lever. Um, and that's, that's actually true, um, you know, for moderation and for behavior modification. Um, these things are, are basically just tools. Um, you know, they're force multipliers for whoever's on the other end of the lever. And 
And like like the leverage analogy in finance, you know, they also have, they also carry risk, you know, with them as well. Um, and and so a lot of these, there's a lot of ways in which like concept of risk and control are like intertwined um, with these with these massive tech stacks. And for me personally, uh, I am a disaggregator and a localizer. Um, I fear the really long lever. I fear the giant pile of leverage in the financial system. I fear the leverage that a really big um, vertically integrated cloud stack that goes all the way from the application down to the data center and it's owned by one party. I fear that concentration of power. So I'm always somebody whose instinct is to, is to break it up. Uh, and, and because we're at this point in the cycle where the really big concentrations of power are in the private sector, um, I find myself on the side of regu regulatory capitalism, um, of using the power of the other really big beast, the other big leviathan, um, to break up some of the larger larger pools of power in the private sector. Now, if we were in a different point in the cycle uh, and the government was overpowered, um, then I would I would probably be some flavor of liber libertarian, where I would just be like, yeah, you know, deregulate all the things and you know, use the, use the power of private capital to break up government power. But I, I don't think we're there. Well, we have a question from Buff. What does a disaggregatory company look like? And then we're going to go to Indian. Sure. Um, so I, I think that this problem is easier than people think it is. Um, I think that if you, I, I think there are a number of things you can do. So first off, um, if you just look at Google, <coughs> so let's take Google. You know, part of the way that Google got as big as it is is by accretion, is by acquiring you know these different companies. Like they acquired YouTube, um, and they acquired you know um, like pretty much everybody, right? So, so, so let's just say um, that that um, we're going to look at the Google YouTube relationship. Um, to me, dis disaggregating those two things means that YouTube has to pay to use, they have to pay the same rate uh, to ship data on Google's cloud as I do if I make a YouTube competitor. Um, that's what disaggregating that means. And because these technologies are, are um, you know, because you've got an OSI stack, you know, at the root of everything and you've got various other layers of the stack, those are convenient places where you can pull things back apart. Um, this is artificial. The system wants to centralize. The system wants to vertically integrate because you get efficiencies and economies of scale. So I'm speaking of doing something that's unnatural. Um, that's that's kind of the um, that's kind of the trade-off. Like I don't, I, I mean, I don't have a better answer because if you just let it run and you let it centralize and you let it become efficient, then you get this monolith that you know that's brittle and it breaks on its own. So, so there's a similar dynamic again in banking, which is my favorite analogy for, for everything tech. Um, you had the wildcat banking era where you had these massive buildups of leverage and you had the banks like go bust. And then, you know, we had to come in and we had to regulate them and we have to, we have to cap, you know, we, we have certain caps on ratios on like leverage ratios. And there are probably places in these tech companies where you could cap, you know, you could cap things artificially, but that's artificial. Like the banks want, to to centralize and to lever up and so you do this unnatural thing to them um, to kind of rein them in because if you don't you just get this rolling sequence of disasters 
Well, I would say that humanity is unnatural in a certain sense where if we didn't work on ourselves, then we'd, start to, there, uh, then, we, then we'd start to uh, degrade over time and would only have to rely on our instincts in order to survive, at which point, what's the difference between us and the uh, animals that walk on all fours? So I think there is kind of like pushing against this inevitability, pushing against, you know, I don't know if you would call it uh, uh, entropy. But I think that there is something to human nature to always want to push against that. And I see these big uh, tech giants and this vertical uh, uh, monopolies that they have as a representation of that. A representation of something that I think is a good battle to fight that at least, you know, give it a fighting shot. And later on at the pearly gates or whatever, when people ask, like, you had a chance to be born as a human being. What did you do with that chance? John Stokes will say, I did A, B and C. And the uh, St. Peter will be like, good, you you can come in. You can come into our clubhouse. So anyway, mm -hmm. I want to go to Indian Bronson. Indian, I'm curious well, what you think. is like uh, heaven for journalists, apparently. <laughs> well, know. some of the journalists don't like the things that are going on in Clubhouse. Not the BTR Clubhouse, you know, that's... Some uh, of us got banned by a certain journalist on uh, <laughs> Clubhouse. <laughs> Interesting. I would love to hear a little bit more about that uh, uh, a little bit later in the conversation. So don't forget to mention that. Anyway, Indian Bronson, take it away, my friend. Uh, what do you think about the things that we've been talking about so far? Uh, yeah, I mean, it probably, I mean, you know, I, I, I had this essay that I wrote, um, uh, like around Christmas time of 2019 and then the pandemic sort of like I had things that I wanted to accomplish uh, because of it. And then, uh, and then work got really, really busy. Um, yeah, no, I mean, so, you know, when, when I think about, uh, like a lot of these decentralization and these, these sort of like disaggregatory industries, uh, um, I see, I see sort of two steps, and the first step is decentralization, is a kind of splintering of what was concrete and cohesive. Um, the second step is essentially, uh, it's, it's really actually an expansion. It's an expansion, and then there's an alignment, and then there's a new paradigm, which is even larger, which is even more in control. Um, you know, so there, there, there's there's been a lot of talk about like, well, you need to you need to exit the West, you need to uh, get out of the cities, you need to, but but people aren't actually going to do that, right? Like, not everyone is going to turn into a homesteader who is just like stuck in a small cabin. Um, the, the the funny thing about human beings is that they really like one another, <laughs> and so <clears throat> and so the, the 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 impulse is actually to congregate again. How they choose to congregate, on what terms they choose to congregate, that's actually the more interesting part. Um, what follows from decentralization is actually recentralization, but recentralization in a new way. Um, this is, you know, you dissolve the crystals in hot water, the hot water cools, the precipitate forms, you get solid again. This is, uh, this is just sort of an inevitable thing. Um, the big opportunity for people who don't like the current regime uh, is that it is in flux. Um, there, there is a lot of energy in the system. There is this opportunity for, for decentralization, for dissolution. Uh, but there should be a lot more energy dedicated right now into thinking about what, like what do you build, what comes next, right? And so the, the the globalist class, if I can if I can call them that, you know they 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 actually do dedicate time to thinking about this, right? You know that's what the whole build back better meme is about. They're like, well, you know, there's this opportunity, there's this destruction of a paradigm. So we have the most money, we have the most allegiances, we have the most legitimacy. We're going to determine what people live in uh, in the future. Um, and, uh, you know, so one of the things that I thought people should should focus on is like uh, build an ICANN accredited registrar, right? Like actually control a building with like copper and fiber cable laid down 
where you have server machines that don't turn off, right? And uh, you know, the conservative response instead was, well, we're gonna build a bad Twitter clone. <laughs> we're gonna call it Parler, right? And then like AWS is like, we're just gonna turn your shit off, right? And this is this is like this is the, this is the ownership of root in the sense of like, you know, do you even control your own cloud compute? Because if you don't, you, you know, you're gonna you're gonna get fucked. So the second thing financially, um, so if you're if you're by a computer. Uh, Google uh, field of membership pre-approved groups uh, FDIC excuse me NCUA and uh, click on the first link that shows up in uh, in, in Google Chrome um, there are a lot of things that dissidents could be doing in the financial space in order to ensure they have financial transactions in the future that they're just not paying attention to um, so like yeah you know PayPal and Stripe uh, they can they can sort of lean on you when Visa says, "Hey, we don't like this guy," or actually a middle manager is like, "Hey, we don't like this guy. Kick him off your platform." Uh, they cannot tell Bancor Bank of Wilmington, Delaware, that they're just going to not honor the interbank lending system. Uh, they don't have the authority to do that. They're actually less than sovereign in that space. Um, if you're a, if you're a Ukrainian American, um, you know, and, and you go to uh, like Second Avenue and Ninth Street in New York City, there's this large building. Uh, I know the one you're. I know the one you're talking about. Yeah, it says Samopomish in big letters, and Samopomish means self-reliance. And so, so this is this is the headquarters of the Self-Reliance Association of Ukrainian Americans. And uh, if you want to get a bank, a bank account, or or a checking account, or a savings account, or a mortgage loan from the uh, Self-Reliance Association's credit union, you actually have to document the fact that you're Ukrainian American. And if you're not Ukrainian American, they don't let you in <laughs> you know there's just they'll be very polite about it but like the field of membership exclusion is provided for by current mm. law what, um, if, what if my dad has ukrainian ancestry does that count or it has to be like ca- that, that it has well it has to be documented you have to you have to bring your you have to bring the proof right and uh, and so they they control the sovereign financial financial institution semi-sovereign so all all sovereigns are actually semi-sovereign uh but they they control the sovereign financial institution where uh, you know, like if you if you show up and you're like, hey, man, uh, <laughs> really need a mortgage loan, but just got laid off. But I have a young kid on the way. You know, the loan officer at this place is going to be like, well, your last name ends in Enco and my last name ends in Enco. <laughs> and then like like but that's that's actually like that is the fundamental mission of the credit union. Right. Um, mm, it, g- it goes back to like- personal uh, preference where there's a little bit of a leeway. So I'm curious, John, what do you think about Indian Bronze's proposals? Do you see any holes in these proposals? Yeah, I, I, um, I mean, I'm a member of a local credit union here in Texas, and and I think in general, uh, so I, I, I'll tell you guys a, a little known secret is back in. 2013, I had a small experimental um, firearms and ammunition search engine called ironsights.com. And, and I kind of got into that and I got booted from multiple payment systems really quickly until I found a regional bank in Nebraska that would take me because I was doing like a freemium model for it. And I got into this idea of just using these local banks and credit systems and stuff. But now I still have a Chase account for like my main checking, like, you know, it's hooked into my to my to my Ameritrade account, you know, so I still do like for my businesses, my LLCs, I'm still I'm still using Chase and I'm doing it like for convenience and ubiquity because and that's that's the hard piece. It's like you're basically having to ask people to give up convenience and incur a certain amount of overhead 
for resilience sake. And that's actually a good segue to prepping because that's what prepping is. Prepping is like, I'm going to give away convenience. I'm going to, I'm going to take on extra cost and extra um, inconvenience for the sake of, of resiliency. Are you a rice and beans prepper or do you go further than the rice and the beans as far as something much more substantial that people can feast on for a long time? Because I'm very new to when it comes to this. I'm not sure when you are a prepper, what are the things that you need to get first? So for all the people like me who are confused, just let us know what exactly is the first step if you want to make sure that, uh, you know, that you got to be self-sufficient. What are like the basic first things you got to do? And new people who are watching this, subscribe right now. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Anyway, John, go for it. Um, well, you know, I don't want to, sh- I, I, I sort of, I didn't mean to segue into prepping, so I don't want to shift off of, of what Indian was talking about with, the, um, you know, the financial system stuff, unless he, if he has another point to make. Um, well, so, yeah, so like, you know, the, the, the thing about prepping is I, I see all of this as a continuum. Uh, so like, I don't believe that there will be, um, so what, what I don't think is going to happen is, so so I have, you know, buried in a field in Pennsylvania, I have uh, a, a steel drum that I sealed up and inside there are antibiotics, there are like two things of emergency rations, and then there is uh, a rifle that is soaked in cosmoline and wrapped in plastic wrap. And there are a thousand rounds of 5.56 ammunition there and then like a couple magazines that are loaded. But it's okay because the spring tension actually doesn't get fucked up if you keep it loaded. It's really just the, the unloading and loading that, that messes with that. I don't think I'm ever going to need to go there and dig it up and then just like, but I, I like the option, right? And also it was just, it was like sort of a performative thing. I did it in like 2014. I was like, ha ha, this would be, this would be fun. But there's a, there's a continuum to that, which is also like, you know, maybe my only credit card shouldn't be, <laughs> shouldn't be Amex, right? Like, you know, right. maybe I should actually have a little bit of optionality here. And, and on this continuum, uh, there's like, there's convenience, I guess you could say there's a lack of friction. And then there's impact that, that you can have, right? Like you can do a lot of stuff in the world if you are not deplatformed from banking, if you are not deplatformed from the internet. If the only oh, thing yeah. standing between you and things that you want to see is your own doership, whether it's founding a company or, or just like getting your message out there, uh, employing people, uh, you, can, you can do a lot of stuff. Um, if the barriers are suddenly like, <laughs> the, those guys have radios and they're looking for me and I don't have a gun, right? You know, that's, that's you, you want to be closer to the other side. The, the, the diversity of credit cards isn't going to help you so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, it's like, you know, you know I, I think about this in the context of, I call it like heritage American nationalism, right? So Clarence Thomas, he's a heritage American. Uh, John McCain, rest rest in peace, St. McCain, technically also a heritage American. Uh, Indian Bronson, whose family came here in the 1980s and who has no real relationship whatsoever to the country, eh, maybe a little borderline, right? <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe a little borderline. In no Mayflower being, there, yeah. Yeah, in terms of being like definitively American, you know? Um, I, I, I have the accent. I don't eat meat. I worship Indra. Uh, it's, it's hard to say what, what George Washington would make. It's, uh, it's lotus flower instead of mayflower. That's, <laughs> that's what I want to say about that. Yeah, yeah. You know, Indian, exactly. I, want, I have an idea that maybe you, you were talking about. I wonder if I could float it with everyone else. It seems to me that um, what you said about parlor, well, we could talk about parlor. I mean, say what you want. I mean, you know, here's the thing. Torba is like a total LARPer and he's a tryhard and he's cringe, but 
he's survived like more um yes. ddos attacks than god i don't know how but mm. he has some kind of weird server system but i think oh. i'm thinking of an idea mm. of like you mentioned about hardware systems about having a place um isolated with actual servers i wonder if you could have like um dissidents willing to create like a library of alex a digital library of alexandria with servers that are well, not it goes, acceptable it goes, it goes to even further than that it goes even further than that oh and before you say how further it goes i just want to say that we have a 10 canadian dollar uh donation uh a one super dollar chat. american donation <laughs> 10 loons? 10 from loons? uh from a uh, Namu Zed from Namu Zed and Namu Zed says, I agree with the parlor criticism, but what are your thoughts on Minds, blockchain, all social network? And we've had the CEO of Minds, uh, Bill Ottman, on uh, BTR as well earlier on, and we uh, look forward to having him well, back soon. Isn't Odyssey also a blockchain? Uh... Yeah, Odyssey is. And uh, yeah. he also writes, if you have any, has more of a libertarian vibe. So uh, Indian and John and, uh, well, Catherine and uh, and also uh, Brian, I would love for you to uh, comment on this as well. So let's start from Indian. Let's go to John. Then uh, yeah, Catherine. So, uh, yes. that, I'll, like, I'll finish this point. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Go for I'll, it. I'll finish this point quickly. So like, because yeah. the, the fact that they could just delete like text. Yeah, yeah, it's go, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll finish the point quickly. Yeah. Um, you know, Gab and your bank and all of this stuff, all of these are services. These are all products, right? So everyone is familiar with software as a service, SaaS, right? Okay, well, you know, the thing that like, you know, the thing that conservatives are finding out that a lot of Heritage America is finding out as the world sort of runs away from them uh, is that government is a service also. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you, you can think of something like the ability to immigrate to the country as like the bounce rate. You can think about uh, people who emigrate to another country as being like churn from the platform. Um, you know, it's a lot easier actually to subscribe to Miami. Like Miami is a subscription service, right? You're paying monthly, <laughs> you're paying, you know, you're paying your rent, you're paying your municipal taxes, you're paying the, the, the groceries. You know, it's a subscription service where it's a lot easier to just buy a new service than build your own. At some point, however, you have to build your own services and, and you actually have to build your own gas. You have to build your own government as a service. Whether, whether that shape of government is as explicit as saying, here is our new flag. If you come onto this territory, we'll shoot you. Or whether it's, it's more like, well, you know, Google is actually a lot more powerful than Bulgaria, even though Bulgaria has a token military. You, you actually have to like, own your own shit and build your own governance and that's the only way you'll be free of someone else's governance very interesting i would love to hear from uh john and uh, also i want to uh talk about self-defense as well i think it's related definitely to this conversation at hand and that's why we also have uh brian o'shea here so uh john uh let me know what you think of uh uh the conversation uh, with uh what indian was mentioning yeah no, i mean you know again it comes down to how much how much overhead you're willing to tolerate um versus versus going the easy route you know and and unfortunately you know under capitalism you get penalized for for taking too much on your own balance sheet and and into your own home um you know there's there that that registers in capitalism as waste um you know maybe to you it looks like slack or resilience but but in a certain context, it's waste and it's puts you at a disadvantage. So, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm I am all for a certain amount of of um, resilience, expensive resilience, 
I guess I would say, you know, I have behind me that red that you can see in the background. That is actually a five gallon bucket of beans. And beneath it is a thing of, um, of rice, uh, which is which is down, you know, right below it by that. There we go, guitar. rice and beans. I, I, uh, I knew got, it. Yeah, I literally have rice and beans up here. Um, and there's more bags of it in my closet that I desperately need to put in a container before I have a mice problem and enter my house. But, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah. I, I keep, you know, I keep food on hand and, and I do that, um, you know, for kind of, you know, what we would now call flattening the curve reasons. You know, I do it because I want to be resilient. I do it because um, I don't want to be running to the grocery store at the same time as everybody else. Um, but, you know, you've got to have space, you've got to have financial resources, and it's something that you have to invest in. And there's an opportunity cost. There's an opportunity cost to carry in, you know, beans and a pallet of Mountain House food. You know, I, when I bought, um, what was it, $4,000 worth of freeze-dried food in 2013, you know, if I had put that money in the market, um, forget about Bitcoin, if I had just put it in the S&P, um, you know, I, I would have some multiple of that now. So, whereas I still have not eaten any of the mountain house, it's still, the pallet is still up actually right above my head on my loft. So, so that's like literal opportunity cost that I'm carrying for, for that decision. And, you know, frankly, for, for all these decisions, it's very similar with firearms. Um, people, people think, well, I'm just going to go out and buy a gun. Yeah, there's a lot that you've got to learn. Um, it's not just about I'm going to accidentally shoot my own foot off. Um, that that's possible. There's also different legalities, even in a state like Texas, man. You know, I have to be careful. I have to know what I'm doing, um, and I have to be willing to take on a certain amount of, of of legal risk and you know potential grief, you know, from the system to to have a firearm and to carry. Um, so, so that's, a you know, that all, all of those things are it's energy, it's attention, it's time I could put to something else. How much the, money would you say you need to be prepared? Um, you know, the question is prepared for what? So, so I, I, I would frame it like this. I would say, um, the main thing that I focus on personally with preparedness is optionality. I'm always looking to increase my options. So, so the first thing that I did when I got into prepping was I got a bug out bag. Um, am I prepared for the apocalypse with a bug out bag? No, but it increases my optionality and you can get into a decent bug out bag. That's, that's pretty well kitted out for, you know, maybe five, $600. Um, and, and we have a lot of recommendations on our site and here's, here's actually, here's one of the good things about, about the moment right now. Um, there are a lot of areas where, um, the CNC machining and, um, you know, current manufacturing processes, even stuff from China is so good, so much better than it was even 10 years ago that you just get like a crap ton of value for just a couple bucks. So, you know, my daughter has a Schrade, $35 Schrade knife in her bag. If you had given me a Schrade knife 10 years ago, I would have thrown it in the dumpster. Um, but the one that she has in her bag is actually quite solid and it's, it's, made in China, but the materials and the manufacturing are really good. Um, and it's very inexpensive. So there are a lot of areas like this in prepping where the cheap option is good and everything else is just gilding the lily. And so at the prepared, um, one of the things that we do, we test everything and there is nothing that we recommend on there 
that is the cheapy that we wouldn't we wouldn't use in an emergency and and that's that's the that's the cool thing is like you don't have to spend a ton of money so you know five six hundred dollars um you could start with the foundation of a really good bug out bag and that's going to give you the option to grab that and jump in the car and go and have resources um, is the idea we, of having all of sorry love um, is the idea of having all of this is it because of your belief in a potential worst case scenario or is it more of a like you know a philosophy of you know it's important to have these things so that you know it's your right and and you are prepared in case is it is it more like a realistic outcome that you're feeling that might happen or you know philosophical more I I think it I think it's a mix. You know, I think people come to this in different ways and for different reasons. Um, I mean, I, I could tell you two stories, actually. So, you know, one story is is we hired a um, we hired an editor at the prepare.com, um, Kelsey Donk, who was not a prepper, but she was just really talented and smart. And so, you know, I, I we hired her and and she started writing for us and doing stories on supply chain. And and this was this past summer. And so she had no clue about prepping, was not a prepper. Um, and she lives in Minnesota and she lives in Minneapolis. And you can probably guess where I'm going with this. Like that video, that viral video of the National Guard, like going up the, that was like her block, um, her post office burned down. Um, and so all this happened to her, like while she's right for us. And so she went from, I don't know anything about prepping, but this gig pays to, I have a full blown med kit, a bug out bag, the whole nine yards because she was without services in lockdown in her house in the middle of, you know, freaking Minneapolis, um, first world, whatever, um, uh, just, you know, instantly. Um, with me, I'm already a prepper. I'm, a, I'm not a doomsday prepper. I don't have like a lot of, a lot of what we would call grid down preps. Like I've got solar, I've got backup fuel on the property. But I had let myself run out of gas for the generator when the Texas storm hit. I'm here in Texas and you know, we just had that ice storm. And, and I, will, I will say that um, I was not prepared for the grid to go down in Texas. That was not a, um, I'm sort of prepared for it, but like it wasn't a thing. It wasn't, a re it wasn't to me a realistic threat. And I have written an article on solar flares and EMPs. And so I felt like I had a good sense of of the risk involved in the grid and so when i started getting twitter dms that week when everything was freezing and people are telling me hey look you know my brother-in-law works at the power company he says that the, the texas grid is about to collapse the whole thing or you know i just got a notice from my power company the grid's about to collapse they said fill, fill a tub of water um, I started getting these Twitter DMs and I knew from my previous work that the Texas is on its own interconnect and that, that the whole Texas grid could go down by itself. And I also knew about the Black Star problem, which is that if the Texas grid were to go down, it would take weeks and weeks to turn it back on because you've got to do all kind of load balancing and all kind of other black magic that nobody has really done live yet on a real grid. Um, so I knew all of this, and, but when I started to get those messages and when I started to um, hear that the Texas grid was very close to complete and total collapse, um, I realized like, hey man, I haven't put a ton of, of effort into grid, into long-term grid down preps because that's not how I prep and I don't have that in my threat model. And I'm certainly not like a fantasy prepper that fantasizes about the end of the world. You know, I have at most um, maybe five months of food on hand, which is very substantial for a family, 
you know, my size, but yeah. after month five, you know, we're going to be as hungry as, as anybody else. So, so I have historically looked at prepping like a combination of buying insurance and having a hobby. Um, you know, I started out like on the insurance end of, of prepping where, you know, I was in San Francisco, I was in, I was like right in Noe Valley and, you know, we had earthquake preps and we had water and food and stuff like that. And then I kind of started to scale up and then I kind of got more into it and it became like, okay, some people spend money on golf. Some people race little tiny go-karts. Um, you know, my hobby is like, I do this prepping thing and that's the bucket that it's kind of stayed in, you know, for the past, um, you know, 10 or 15 years for me is, is the, um, the hobby, the hobby bucket, you know, it's like that, that's basically if I've got, um, you know, some hobby, spare hobby cash, like it goes into some prep or something like this. That's a great way to look at it. I mean, I probably would have never even thought of it, things in that direction if it wasn't for the pandemic, but learning how badly our supply chain sometimes can be and, you know, the the toilet paper shortages that we've all heard of and, and lineups for food, like those were not things that I ever expected to experience in North America and that here we were. Uh, however, you know, they were luckily restored after, after a while, but you know, yeah, that's really interesting. Love? These events are like, these are exogenous events where it's like, you know, it's, it's like an act of God. It's like the, the weather is now, Black Swan. you are not going to have electricity anymore. Uh, and that's just too bad for you. Right. Deep platforming is when a group of individuals decide that you're going to experience your own personal ice storm and they're just going to take your services away from you. Well, and, except you're not, a, you know, you, you don't have the right necessarily to speak to a, a large amount of people on a platform. It's it's something that's like, yeah, well, but like, that's even that's not even that's not particularly true. You know, the people who so, so there's like a, a group of arguments that will say, well, there's no right for you to use Twitter.com. If, if, if Twitter.com doesn't like what you're saying, they can get rid of you. I guarantee you, if a group of African Americans were to say our our goal in life is to advance the cause of foundational Black American nationalism. Uh, Twitter is never going to touch them, and not only are they never going to touch them. If any, if anyone in content management at Trust and Safety at Twitter.com said, "Hey, you know what? I think this violates some of our policies. We're going to start banning these accounts." Uh, there would be a lawsuit, and the courts would be like, "You're gonna pay you." Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree, but I guess it depends on whether you view these platforms as a public square by the virtue I, that I they're so what, 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 what I'm telling you is, I don't view uh, the distinction of public and private as meaningful or or useful to an individual's life. Well, equally, I want to clarify what I mean by that because, like, there, there is, there are two ways to have this conversation. One is where we delve into a deep web of ideological preferences about public and private and libertarian yeah. and capitalist and are things justified by the free market. The other one is, okay, I want to live my life. I want to be able to do things. Do I have the material capacity to be able to do them regardless of what the structure is or the ideology is? And I prefer the second one, which is like, I don't actually care whether or not there is a formalized legal right defined by the constitution and existing case law that says, yes, I can do this or no, I can't do this. I care whether or not I can do it. Um, that to me is the more interesting conversation because ultimately 
judges can come up with whatever rationalizations they want. Private companies can come up with whatever rationalizations they want. Uh, you have to determine how you can live the rest of your life based on what is materially available to you and what you've already gotten for yourself. Well, and that's what you're saying, though, what's materially available to you. And these companies sort of have the ability to decide that and kind of going back to the and question. That, and that makes them governments. That makes them that makes them governing bodies. They're governing uh, parties of sorts because no, 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 of they're, they're, the nature they're, of their... I want to see. I guess the tech issue as well, like whether Mm. these platforms are even built upon purely free enterprise, not just um, technology, but also Mm. the the legal framework. Even if they they were, or even if they weren't, right? Like whether or not Twitter had, like if Twitter was wholly from its inception on day one a U.S. government platform, or Twitter was entirely developed, like you know what? Not not just the Twitter API, not just like the Twitter platform. If like the concept of computing and like transistors was all the birth, the, the brainchild of Jack Dorsey, like, you know, it, it doesn't matter. What matters is that it has this function, right? Like you, I can, get a- you, you can download an app called Viber and you can use it as your phone or you can rely on like public broadband and use it as your phone. But like, it's the communication that matters. I want to get to Brian. Brian, you had your hand up and you were not talking this entire time, patient as a fucking saint. So uh, let us know what you think about this. And uh, also, I want you to touch on the preparedness and self-defense yeah, as well. Yeah, I wanted to have a question about preparedness. Because, yeah, John, I don't know if like, are you guys close, by the way, Brian, are you living in Texas or where are you living in right now? Uh, right now, I'm in the Hudson Valley in New oh. York. So okay. we're having the kind of cold, weirdly like Texas had. You know, we have that all the time, but I'm sorry uh, for you guys, by the way. Sounds like you got through it okay, though, John. Oh, John, you got to unmute yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we, we, um, we, uh, we had a weird go of it, man. We, uh, we lost water um, for on and off um, just for pipe, pipe freezing reasons, but we did not mm-hmm. lose power, which was, which was really fortunate. Um, so, I mean, we have like a backup plan. We have an air, we have a new Airstream that that my wife offices nice. out of which is which is really great and so we kept that thing warm and ready um and, you know it's got propane and all that stuff so in case we needed to retreat to it we could have and stayed warm but but we are on some kind of weird circuit where even though there were rolling blackouts i think we share a circuit with like a hospital or fire you know thing right. or some fire station so gotcha we had um we had burst pipes we have trees down everywhere on the property um, we went without water. The horses were very difficult to keep watered, um, so it was a uh, it was a trip. And I, of course, I had no internet the whole time, and I had very little mobile internet, um, which it was kind of great. It was kind of awesome, and also kind of terrifying, you know, to be forced offline for like a week in your house. So, oh God. <laughs> well, uh, well, it, like I said at the time, it's like that episode of King of the Hill where there oh, was yeah. a freak snowstorm and Hank had to go get pro- propane out to people as a matter of life and death. Propane. Like literally it's like, that's what the episode was. Um, Absolutely. No, that was great. I'm a fan of the King of the Hill. So uh, Brian, let us know your perspective of what you and your family are doing. Cause you know, you've got your kids are like learning all the various arts of combat. Yes. Now I don't know what's going on. Like you are, you are taking it to the next level, my friend. I mean, yeah, you could say that. And and hello, everyone. Interesting conversation. I, I really don't want to go into, uh, you know, government types and um, political views because I probably disagree with a lot of people. I'm a libertarian. Um, as far as Twitter goes, I just did want to say that uh, 
if they are a public um, service, they should have their special status removed uh, because they do um, ban people. My, my wife's been, she's setting a record. She, she got banned uh, four times in the last 10 days. I've known so, people who've been banned 50 times. <laughs> by the way, without, uh, yeah, without this, saying, without by the way, saying shout exactly. Out to Nuke Telly. Shout out to Nuke Telly. Yes. Been banned 50 times. Whew. So without saying well, the exact just reason yeah. why, if you think that that's going to get this stream banned, if a way, if you can like snake around it in a certain way. Yeah, no, absolutely. The, what was well, the reason? Yeah. Uh, there's a certain thing that they want to jab into people's arms, which is I'm totally fine with as long as everything is safe and proven to be. And so is she. Um, but posting a peer reviewed thing from one of the manufacturer's websites without comment got her banned. And that's just not a standard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so my thing is that, look, it's a private platform. That's fine. Um, but they do have that special status where you can't really sue them. And I, I think the minute you start censoring people without a standard process, which is, in my opinion, what we are seeing, um, you're, you've gone from a public platform to a private publisher. And that's that's where I stand on that. But I, I won't go too far down that. And uh, Indian Bronson, is, <laughs> which is a great avatar, by the way, which was shocking when it popped up um i thought i was in the wrong chat but then i realized i, was, I saw the gun as i got like, in the right chat um but the thing is um yeah so that that's how i feel about that i look as m my my stance i i fell into being a libertarian there's no real set of rules for libertarians it's not like democrats where they believe in this or republicans where they believe in this i i think our overarching nature is leave us the fuck alone uh, yeah. You do your thing. I'll do mine. I might help you, but I'm not going to be mandated to. Um, I, I don't need you to control my life because my life is different than anyone's life on this this platform. And so how how can a bunch of uh, people who got elected from different states know what every single person in the country needs? I mean, I, I think this country was built on the fact that we're, you know, independently minded mm -hmm. entrepreneur type people. Um and, you know, it, it, it's doing, you know, if people just follow the rules that have been established for, you know, 200 plus years, it, it was doing just fine. And, you know, I just think currently, especially with, you know, what we're seeing on the border and what we're seeing with a lot of things. Um, and I, I look at every news stream um, and I get out there, I drive across the country. I don't just get it online. Um, November, I put in 600 miles a day and I zigzagged all the way to Washington state. And every time I see a government try to get involved at such a granular level, especially in the United States, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. I mean, we were set up to kind of have our, our own governing thing and stay within certain parameters. Anyway, so that's that's all I'll say about that. Well, uh, two, two things. Number one, for those who don't know uh, uh, Brian's wife, uh, she is a Naomi Wolf, who is an American feminist author, journalist, and former political advisor to Al Gore and Bill Clinton. And so those are... Uh, Wait, you know, are you trolling me right now? No, that's... Uh, Brian's wife you? is Naomi Wolf. Yeah. No fucking way. I'm sorry. It's <laughs> oh, just that's... really. Yeah, really. Oh God. Yes, for real. Wow, that's crazy. There we go. We're bringing everybody I find together it sort of, here. 
I find that was it like, sort this of, hit me out okay. of nowhere. That was like, oh, <laughs> man. Gio uh, is, is very impressed, I think, oh, with your yeah. taste in, in wise. Would you, would you I, like I noticed, to send I, you a book? Oh, yes, please. <laughs> this um, is I, the I one noticed, that's, this is really trending right now. I just find it kind of interesting, Brian, that you say that you are a libertarian and and kind of the idea of of the values, because theoretically, you know, as a libertarian, you would sort of say or correct me if I'm wrong, because it could be. But that, you know, Twitter or whatever the platform is, they since they're a business, they can sort of decide what to do. But Mm -hmm. it seems like a lot of people, a lot of libertarians and and others are, are sort of feeling that maybe that's not quite right in the situation of these platforms because of the impact that they have, because they're not just normal businesses. Would you say well, that? Well, yeah, what I was, I mean, I don't know who they are. And, and to be, to be clear, um, I'm a libertarian because I don't really um, uh, relate to either of the other parties. I, I, I'm very comfortable as a libertarian. I've spoken at several students for liberty events um, all over the world. And um, but to your to your point, um, what I was saying is um, there were private. The first thing I said is they are a private company. It's like leave them alone. But they do have a special status, legal status that's been afforded to them um, by the U.S. government. And that I don't like. I mean, first, it gives them an unfair advantage uh, competitively. Um, and I, I'm not for flattening markets or anything like that. And it's tough to be a libertarian because you can't be a pure libertarian without being a total anarchist. Um, yeah. <laughs> so as you know, I'm, I'm kind of, a, I guess, if there's such a thing, a moderate libertarian where I, I do, of course, believe that you need some rules and you do need uh, some parameters. Otherwise, we'll have chaos. But I, I also, my if it's maybe it's going to boot me out of the libertarian sector. But um, I I do believe that, look, if you're going to have rules for one, you have rules for all. If we are accepting a government set of rules, then, you know, everyone operates under the same rules and, and that's it. Um, And I'm just, yeah. I I also want to get uh, some, uh, uh, some thoughts from uh, John, John, this is your stream. And I know it's uh, six o'clock right now. I don't know how long you'd be able to stay, but I really appreciate you being here. So, uh, (laughs) Please, uh, I, I just want to get John's opinion on what uh, Brian was talking about and where exactly do you see that limit of libertarianism? Because for myself, my big concern has been if the uh, default is leave us alone, if there is such a thing as manufacturing consent, then this trend that we have seen towards this radical SJW leftism, like whatever you want to call it, this is not something that's been forced upon people. This is something that's been thread through the media, through advertising, just through the general condition that people are in. So when it comes to saying, <laughs> I, want, I, want to leave, you know, I want people to leave me alone and that's it, I'm not sure if it's that simple. So I'm curious uh, what your thoughts are on uh, that. And this is my cat, Steve, by the way. Everybody subscribe for the sake of Steve. Steve is a beautiful cat. I love Steve. Anyway, go for it, John. Will you send us a virtual pet? Or her, if we, uh, I'm a dog person, so love. I, I have some issues with this, but I'll let John answer. Well, your name's Cat, yeah, so also, that's weird. I'm also a dog person, so thanks, but, uh, John. Yeah. I appreciate you more, much more than love. I um, I also I I went through. I'll say I went through a very brief libertarian phase, but um, 
I <laughs> I describe myself as a localist, which doesn't have a ton of meaning, um, you know, in in the zeitgeist. But but I it's um it's sort of a little bit libertarian in spirit in the sense that like I am a, a breaker up of large clumps of power. You know, I like competition. Mm -hmm. And I like to see big pools of power um, broken up, um, you know, usually by other big pools of power. I would rather see them broken up intentionally than to see them do what they often do, which is to collapse and implode under their own weight. Um, so I, where I part ways from libertarians is that I don't, um, I'm not dogmatic about whether those pools of power are in the public sector or in the private sector. And I think what we're seeing now is a kind of moment where um, a lot of, of that public sector, private sector distinction, we're fighting through this. I mean, we just had an argument, you know, with Indian about, well, no, they're governments. Well, no, they're not governments, you know? And so it's like um, the, that libertarian versus statist dichotomy, I don't think necessarily gives you the tools uh, to, to think through problems of, of concentrations of power um, in a, a networked age. And, you know, there are a lot of ways in which yeah. I, so, so I, that's, that's my, that's my, my feeling on this. And so I am, um, I, that's why I describe myself as a localist. I mean, I'm, I'm sympathetic in a lot of ways to libertarianism, but then I also am like, well, I will set the Leviathan of government against the Leviathan of, you know, Amazon, for instance, and like lets you and him fight and, and, you know, and hopefully they will counterbalance each other. Uh, but again, I would say, okay, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, Sorry. I just want to say real quick, something that the chat was bringing up, which I should address. I am neutral on this issue just because I know that there have been really bad things throughout history when it comes to any time you would, let's say, suppress people who happen to belong to whichever group from participating in the marketplace. And, you know, that's been done in Russia. That's been done in all, all over the place. So with that being said, people were bringing up uh, freedom of association. And uh, there was a very interesting book that I read called um, called Age of Entitlement by Christopher Cadwell. I have a link to it in the uh, chat, which talks about how after the civil rights movement of the 60s, there was this kind of like a dual constitution in place. So you had one constitution where under the First Amendment, it would guarantee freedom of association. But then you would have the competing constitution where that's not exactly the case. So like if you're a business, you cannot discriminate against people, you know, based on race, for example, as far as who you let in. But the question that Christopher was proposing here was that uh, what exactly does this mean down the road as far as like he was talking about basically the powers of the courts expanding from that having the status of people who you know who is or isn't allowed to uh participate in that uh association to you know now we're talking about you know women then you know lgbtq and all that and again i don't have a problem with that but i think what he was bringing up and i always bring up the example of let's say california which i talked before about with you uh with you brian california creating this new law where if you're a business of a certain amount of you know make a certain amount of money you have to hire a certain amount of uh women i believe or like uh some other un un underrepresented groups in like top positions like ceo positions which creates a potential problem when it comes to businesses that let's say are making that amount of money but not a super amount of money where they're not going to be able to fulfill that mandate thus 
there's mm-hmm. going to be less competition for the bigger fish out there. So that is just one scenario that I see. I'm not sure what the other ones would be. I mean, people people have been talking about this whole freedom of association thing for a while. Uh, so I'm curious, uh, John, what your opinion is, as well as everybody else's. Is there is this being blown out of proportion from the people that are taking a look at this simultaneous as they uh, as they see it a system of uh, of laws or uh, simultaneous constitution? Uh, or is there something uh, potentially dangerous about this? I'll let Brian jump in. Oh, thanks, John. Um, well, first, uh, I want to address, uh, I think you sound to me a lot more like a libertarian than you think you are. Um, we would call ourselves localists as well, based on your description. Um, and I would also say that uh, I do respectfully disagree with you that it doesn't give us the tools to really delve into these these issues you brought up. I think it gives us the freedom mentally to delve into them because we're not locked into a certain dogma of, you know, big government knows what's best for you versus, you know, reduced government and, you know, uh, unrestricted market. We, we do believe in unrestricted markets, but, you know, we're not locked into a Republican view and we're not locked into a Democratic view. And I think the nature of human beings does not allow us where we're constantly evolving. I'm a different man than I was, you know, six years ago. And that's why I don't like, you know, I like, I like guidelines. I don't like rules. And so um, with that said, I, I think it does allow us to, you know, especially in the age of technology, being able to be mentally nimble um, to the fast, insanely fast, rapidly, you know, evolving uh, technologies that are controlling our life. I mean, you know, having that ability to jump about it, and it sounds like you have that ability, and, and most people do. Um, I also like being a libertarian, because I, I think the best thing about human beings, but I'll say, especially, you know, people who live in free societies, I won't just say Americans, is the great things like um, the internet and Twitter and these things that uh, have come into our lives. They came as a result of people not being mentally restricted into a certain dogma. It came from uh, a combination of intellect, some Asperger's, and um, some, uh, you know, but a lot of creativity. And when you start locking, and I, I have found this just in hiring people, like I try to hire people um, for budgetary reasons, but also, you know, because I get better work out of them if I put them on a contract and a project-based contract. The minute I've made people like W-2s or wage earners, uh, the work product just goes down the toilet. And I think it's because there's this subconscious sense of this guaranteed paycheck. And what I found with that is, yeah, that might be comfortable, but if the whole world went to, let's say a guaranteed paycheck type style, and I know I've kind of gone off course here, I think you're going to see a huge deficit in creativity because you saw it yourself and you just described it. When you ran into huge, huge issues with the storm, you got creative. You're talking about prepping. That takes a lot of creativity. When you're faced with any sort of hardship or challenge, your, your creative side comes out. And I think that's what makes uh, humans so wonderful. And so I, my, my, my problem with so much increase in government uh, management of our lives, and I, I have children too, and it sounds like you, ha- if you don't have children, you have a lot of people you're taking care of and, you know, anyone else on the thing. 
And I know what's best for my children. Um, in the some committee in Washington does not. And so, and that's when to uh, back to Les' point, the stuff I'm doing with my son where I'm showing him, and I, I did it with my daughter as well. Uh, she's in her twenties now, but um, that's just stuff we did growing up um, is learning how to shoot, learning how to fish, learning how to make fires. And um, maybe not so much learning how to throw axes, but uh, the point is, uh, I just feel like people should let their citizens shine and and not assume they're going to screw things up. Yeah. And um, and I'm, I'm now now I'm a fierce libertarian ever since it was a it was a Brennan that that grouped in libertarians with oh, insurrectionists yeah. and domestic terrorists. And then, uh, you know, I just, I can't have that. And one more final point I'll say is I am totally, I, I want businesses to have free markets. I want private businesses, even like Twitter, to be able to kick anyone off their platform they want because the government should not be over-regulating businesses. Um, you know, they kind of have to regulate some businesses because, you know, you don't want certain brothers blowing up entire Texas towns because they don't care about the environment. Um, I'm trying not to get you censored left. But thank you. The point is, um, what I'm seeing now, and, and I'd recommend everyone take a look at it. And it's a it's a tweet I pinned last night. If you look at this new HR bill, um, they are using the government is using private enterprises to propagandize people with, you know, to take the vaccine. And, you know, I'm all for PSAs and saying, hey, look, we know you're worried. Here's why you should take it. Here's the, the cost benefit analysis. I'm fine with transparency. Totally cool. But this is a covert influence campaign that $1 billion has been assigned to. And they're even, and it's laid out in plain English that they're going to get people to take this vaccine. And that's fine. Take the vaccine. I will take the vaccine. I don't want to be first in line. But um, once everyone's not growing a third arm and everything, I'm fine with that. I'm vaccinated. I was in the military. I had no choice. But what I don't like and what scares me, and I think what scares a lot of people, um, is people are getting kicked off major social media platforms simply for questioning um, the safety mm. of the vaccine. Well, and that, that's even, where I have a even problem. beyond that, like, for example, um, okay, Alex DeLarge in the chat, do you prefer <laughs> Facebook? I agree. Do you prefer Facebook being regulator? Yeah, this is why I am not a libertarian. I mean, I, I get what Brian is uh, saying, but for example, um, I'm just sorry. I'm just I'm reading um, um, the the way you met uh, your wife was she had threats against her for reporting about human rights violations in the Middle East. Is that true? Is that you... Yeah, something. Like that. <laughs> but no, no. But for example, recently she was recently banned. I remember because Naomi Wolf was brigaded by Chapo Trap House Ironess at the behest of Will Menker, who was like making fun what? of her action like legitimate take was like saying she's lost it. She's terrible. She's crazy. When, right. when uh, Naomi was saying that um, the masks are going to create whole generations of kids who do not have that sort of like connection to people. And it very similar, almost in some ways to Georgie O'Gaman's argument about the loss of human intimacy and just the interpersonal intimacy of seeing someone's face but but then again like you know the chapel people they're probably i mean they're probably taking money from some organization that uh 
So now they have uh, to get rid of. You have to send me all this stuff because I don't know who they are. Yeah, I yeah, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll send you the tweets. But um, yeah, so I, I'm just reading up. But no, but yeah, I think that um, what I wanted to talk about maybe just to get back to the prepping thing mm-hmm. and also the way technology, sure. the technology plays into this. Um, I I think that it seems that the the popular image of the the prepper is sort of like this larpy like i live on a property a compound and i'm gonna like you know gonna the branch gonna go, davidians uh, yeah branch davidian type of stuff but i don't know i think that i forget who said this i think it was the canadian prepper guy where he said like the the best sort of defense against any um sh uh tf situation um, is that you have a community of people who have certain skills around you. For example, if you are lucky enough to live in a farming community and you know your neighbors and you actually like, you know, legit get along and talk with your neighbors, I think that's probably a, a better approach than like I have some kind of like bunker where I have like, you know, um, mm-hmm. I have a, uh, what's the, I'm, I'm just remembering the Alex Jones commercial um, where it's, um, what's the food company called the freeze-dried food um uh he's like they're, they're not like other oh, crummy foods uh they're the uh, e-foods direct <laughs> like if you have stuff like that yeah um i i think like what, what is the difference between that and sort of what people think of being a prepper is so i i, I don't know i i feel like again this goes to like the the loss of community in general um and, and then I would also be interested in uh, circling back to that question that the chat was asking. And also, free, if we could a... have a sewing discourse with Naomi Wolf, that would be oh, excellent as that well. Oh, that would be really cool. <laughs> Definitely. And I, I just want to make sure that after that, we also could circle back to the freedom of association. Well, I, I think we should I may be making a big... Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Go on. I was going to say, I think we should definitely at some point, because there's that, that's why I love Break the Rules, because there's mm. a million like topics we can go down and um you know and you know at some point i definitely want to talk about why i always tag things as investigate everything especially media like i i've been on the inside i used to be the guy without going into the detail that would start the spin and now being on the inside of it and just watching the 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 avalanche of idiocy just just take over you know fueled by a lot of bots and a lot of trolls where like you know you're you're you know you're in the crowded theater and you're like no no fire is the name of the movie yeah. sit down you're trampling each other and everyone just goes nuts <laughs> and uh, yeah I've been on the inside of that but different topic but would love to talk about that sometime because it you know it happens to a lot of public figures all the time where they're like hey you know what I found this uh, in that case there this you know this watch and I heard these guys talking about time travel which is the name of the watch or some function and then she got banned and everyone's like oh she believes in time travel oh my god you know it's like no, she doesn't oh, believe in time travel you idiots like read the links anyway so but uh, but when it comes to uh, prepping and having let's say your own not even compound but just like a group of people that you can trust I think that there is this tendency in media today and John I'm curious what you think about this as well of uh, looking at anybody who wants to be let's say independent self-sufficient uh being like with their family as something that does come back to this question of you know distrust like they're going to exclude people they're just going to have like their own people there and what exactly is the right balance here 
Because again, like this is why I go back to this whole question of First Amendment, freedom of association, stuff like that, because I think we have grown as a society, even though the media makes it look like we didn't. I think we have grown for the better when it comes to being able to accept people who are different from us, while at the same time, I think having roots to family, community, all that kind of stuff is important, and people could be judged based on whether they resonate with the community or not. In other words, like if you want to have your own like independent community somewhere, like the Amish, or I don't know, like you would want want there to be somebody who would want to be the best Amish they can be as opposed to somebody who would do things completely differently from you. And I think that there is a tendency, and please let me know if this is the case, of people within big tech to be very questionable of that and to instead look at people who want to be separate and just like do their own thing as being something that's going to ruin this great experiment of uh, yeah. uh, coexistence, multiculturalism, whatever you want to call it. That that's exactly what it is. So so early on, this is this is what I'm saying. There there's sort of two steps here. There is decentralization, and then there's this uh, this this recentralization step, right? And so, you know, fundamentally, like if like if you if you are you know for, forget like the individual entities there. Like there's there's this like overmind entity called Google. There's this large institutional entity called big tech, right? There are these networks of of relationships and career hierarchies and things like that, that produce incentives that sort of emanate a will out in the world. Uh, it looks at things like uh, right-wing dissidents and it sees sand in the gears. And all it's doing really is it's cleaning the sand out of the gears, right? You know, when, when it comes to the gears of uh, commerce and trade and free enterprise and all that stuff. And the opening up of markets. Yeah, 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 it's yeah. just economic production, right? If your position is, I don't want to have more labor in this area. You are sand in the gears, fundamentally. You are opposing the line going up. And so to it, all it's actually doing is it's it's preserving the system and it's getting rid of the problem. And this is, this is what dissidents don't understand. Like the only way to counteract that is to be as equivalently sovereign as Google is. You know, you can, you can analyze this in terms of state power and again, private public distinction doesn't matter. If you want to live on a particular territory and someone else wants to live on a particular territory, your bodies can't physically exist in the same space, right? So if you want to prevent them from coming onto that territory, uh, build a wall, get guns, you know, do patrols. Like it's, it, it, this is really what it comes down to uh, is who actually has power. And so to me, it's, it's uninteresting. I think counterproductive to try and analyze all of these things in the realm of public or private or what should we have or what shouldn't we have how about what do you have what will you have um this is this is even more fundamental than those things uh you know like like in, in terms of personal protection right like you know so so my carry gun for a very long time was a sig 229 uh you know particularly the sas model with the e2 grips it's really nice it's very slick um, the thing about it, though, is it's got this big old hammer on the back. And I was about to grab mine and wave it. I have to <laughs> yeah. Ask, yeah. But then I'm like, you know, I don't want to get booted. I don't want to get this banned. Like, I don't yeah. know how the AI gotta, reacts. Like, our government is being run by people we did not have a choice uh, to be there. And, and that's where I have a real problem with relying on completely on the government for even law enforcement, because... Um, there's a bunch of people in this country that will say, hell no, I, I, I am, I totally support, you know, honest and ethical police forces. 
absolutely. Uh, I had one at my house yesterday to take a, take a, a report from us. Um, and, but the point is, is like, I took, you know, if we lose faith in the government because we don't know who, who, whose interests they're, they're putting uh, forward, uh, you know, I think that's 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 when we have a problem, and and I just want to see more transparency in what's going on and why it's going on, and and that's really where I stand with with most things. Uh, I do want to bring that question back to you, the one that I was asking uh, Indian Bronson, when it comes to having this balance between freedom and openness. How do we move on as a society to get better in balancing uh, these two things out? Also. That could lead into like the question about Ars Technica itself, right? So let's go ahead. Well, so I, I had, um, I, I remembered um, that you were, we, we were, have been discussing the lone wolf versus the community thing. Is that what you were getting at? Um, uh, or was it uh, different? Oh, that was before. Yeah. But that, yeah, you, you give your thoughts on that. And then Lev, I guess. Ask me about the R situation first. We'll get that out of the oh, way. Okay. Yeah. Um, no. So you, uh, you left Ars Technica right before, because um, when, when we were prepping for this stream, um, I remember Ars Technica. I don't know if you, uh, well, I, everyone knows because it was the ground zero of the internet. Um, we had the the whole, I remember Ars Technica during the Gamergate thing, mm -hmm. um, going into certain narratives. And I wonder, um, did you, so you, you no longer at, are at Ars Technica, you left or? Yeah, I, I left in, in, um, in late 2011 or, or early 2012, maybe, maybe it was early mm -hmm. 2012. Interesting. Um, and, and so uh, was that just like a business thing or you um, wanted to get out of publishing? Or... Yeah, it was a couple of different things. I mean, you know, I had that typical sort of um, sort of co-founder thing where, you know, I, I was the deputy editor. So I was number two at the site and the editor in chief, Ken Fisher, was was just going to stay there. And he's still there, actually. And so when you're in that boat, um, you're, you know, there's no place for you to go. Uh, so, so I was like, all right, you know, I, I want to do something else. Like, I'm not going to be the editor in chief here. Um, you know, I'd like to try to do my own thing, but then also I was just, I was burned out. Um, I went to wired for a bit, uh, and did a cloud computing thing, but I was kind of burned out on tech and tech media and, you know, tech news. And, and I, that was a route that was when gadget blogging, that was in the, in the peak of, you know, Ink gadget and Gizmodo and stuff like this. Oh yes. And, <clears throat> you know, so I had seen things go from where uh, an era where I could get like traffic with a really serious deep dive on CPUs or GPUs to getting spanked by, you know, people posting pictures of, you know, robotic Japanese toilets or some, you know, things of that nature, right? So this was, um, it, you know, it's sort of the rise of like memeing and virality. And, and um, it, you know, like everything is cyclical, like it's cyclical, it's coming back now to where now you can get paid for deep dives again, it's interesting. So, so I just did, I kind of didn't want to do that. Um, mm -hmm. So I bailed uh, and I did some startups. Um, I did some software um, after Wired and kind of felt found my way back into media. Hmm. And and now you uh, are a big advocate of um, of, of Substack and and just so, because you were there like right for the beginning of the like explosion of tech journalism. I remember one time when I was a kid, I went into a computer shop 
with my father and there was this like box receiver where you could watch TV on your computer and they had uh, the robot wars playing. And I remember when I was a kid, I was like, that's fascinating. But now it seems, um, it, it seems the tech optimism thing. Uh, are you, do you feel that it's more of a pessimistic tone or is there still somewhat of like this latent, like tech utopian Californian ideology type of stuff going on? Or do people sort of resign themselves to the fact that, it's um, the sort of the, the the promise of digital technology itself has sort of uh, in some ways plateaued or what is your feeling on like the question around like the future of tech in general? So, so I think that that's, that's an interesting question. I know what you're asking because, you know, Wired was kind of the epicenter in media of that tech optimism and that was their brand and it, it is, sort of it still is. Um, and and the way that things have shaken out in the past 10 years, especially in the past five, is, is it's it started the tech optimism versus tech pessimism has started to map onto the red tribe, blue tribe stuff, you know? Um, and now it's getting shaken up again, frankly, with the red tribers going after big tech, you know? So there's a lot of, you know, things have kind of have mutated and gyrated. Um, I myself am a, um, I've always been um, critical. I, I consider myself critical of tech, but from a, a friendly and hopeful place. So, you know, I I want to I, I typically will want to criticize tech and big tech um, with the feeling of improving it, with the feeling of let's make it better. And there are writers that are that way. You know, like Zainab Tufechi is that way. She is very much aligned with tech optimism and the tech optimist. But she's but she gets lumped in with um, the kind of Brooklyn woke media because she's critical of of tech, and that's that's sort of unfair. And I know for my own writing and and thinking, I have moderated a lot of my criticisms of tech, especially on Twitter, because I don't want to signal um, you know anti tech uh, the way that that people that work for you know most large media outlets are signaling anti tech now. I don't want to get, I don't want to get stuck in that box. So, you know, what, one of the needles I'm trying to thread with my newsletter is, is I am trying to be sympathetic with the critics of AI and the AI ethicists while also trying to be optimistic about the tech, because to me, um, I, I'm a capitalist, you know, I'm, I'm always, I'm a regular, I'm a pro-regulatory capitalist, so I'm not a libertarian capitalist, but I am a capitalist. And, and I'm not down with any amount of communism and I'm not down with very much of socialism. So, so if you're trying to destroy capitalism, if you're trying to destroy liberalism, well then, then we're ideological enemies, you know? Um, and, and so I kind of find myself in this camp of, of, um, of aligning with big tech um, and with you know, the startup scene and with the tech optimists, even though I personally um, am a bit of a, of a, um, I don't want to call myself a tech pessimist, but you know, I like to criticize tech. I, I tend to see what's wrong with it more than I tend to see what's right with it because the market's going to tell you what's right with it. You know, the market is, that's one of the great things about capitalism. It's going to tell you what you're doing right. Um, but it's not necessarily, um, going to tell you what you're doing wrong in terms of like externalities and, you know, blowback and things like this. Um, so, well, I, full disclosure, I'm critical of, 
I'm very critical of both capitalism and uh, liberalism, but I, I feel that in, in some ways, I, I mean, I, it, it should make sense in a, a sort of, um, in an environment of, of the uh, freedom to sort of the markets to fluctuate themselves. But I, I noticed that even in tech in general, it seems that there's a plateauing effect of the amount to which um, the market can deliver on innovations or even when they do it, like the innovations that are ultimately beneficial to people or the common good or some other intangible concept that in some ways escapes commodification. Because I, I feel that a lot of people, like even just the attitudes of people in general and the way that technology and, and the internet itself is utilized, uh, it seems that it, it's um, creating a number of very unique pathologies that are concerning and people gravitate towards a lot of like lowest common denominator stuff. Like for example, you mentioned Google. I like, for example, when they purchased YouTube, right? Like YouTube was at one point, and I remember, you know, being on early YouTube as a lurker, it was very much like a ground up, like you could broadcast yourself, but that sort of ethos has been eroded over time by the forces of the corporatocracy coming in and sanitizing content. And now YouTube is basically like, internet corporate tv at least at the top so i i'm very i'm almost i'm i understand where you're getting at but uh but anyways yeah that's that, that's a good uh that's a good explainer uh, but but who knows right i mean maybe there is a space for uh there there's things are changing and maybe like alternative people will come into the tech space and and change things up i mean i i feel that the way things are going there seems to be somewhat of a of an entropy but I don't know. I mean, who, who's to say that things will be radically different in four years' time, right? So, just to... yeah, you know, people put out these like. Chinese cultural revolution analogies and like these year zero analogies. And um, I have to say like those have an increasing amount of appeal to me, you know, frankly, um, because there is a, and this goes back to the very beginning of the conversation around blockchain and who has root and who gets to delete. There's a deletionist you know, um, spirit of, of we're going to, we're going to scrap the existing code base and we're going to start over with the hot new framework of the nanosecond, you know? Um, and, and so there's that kind of like end it, don't mend it approach and, and societies can go through those, you know, they can go through a, a moment where they want to scrap everything that came before and they want to give into this utopian impulse and sort of create these new structures from the ground up. And of course that just, just never works out well at all. Um, so, so I think that we are, um, you know, we're, we're sort of maybe in that moment, we're in one of those kind of moments where um, people are beginning to feel that something else is possible. And we, I think we went for a long time without feeling that there was something else possible other than the specific flavor of, of capitalism that we had for, you know, for 20 or 30 years. And so, you know, COVID has brought about some of that um, and before that, but, but it was brewing already. COVID just accelerated it. And, you know, I have a fear that 
that, um, you know, sure, I'm not happy with all aspects of the status quo either, but, but I am not any flavor of, of a deletionist type of, if that's a real word, maybe I just, you know, coined it or something of a deletionist type of in, that impulse to like, to erase the past, to, um, to cancel the past, to, you know, to do away with it and to start completely over. And, and there's something there, and I don't, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole at all, um, but I'll, I'll, I'll gesture towards it. You know, there's something there in the idea around gender identity of like dead naming and reinventing yourself and, you know, um, canceling your previous identity that you had when you were a different gender. And so there's something in the zeitgeist of, of I get to create my identity afresh in this new moment and completely erase everything that I was before I, I made this transition. And there's a desire, I think, to do that more broadly um, with all of society to say, we're going to erase, you know, everything that came before and we're going to, you know, kind of transition um, the country to some new, new structure or a new set of norms or new set of values. It's very and, much aligned with like the sort of the model, the social media model of, uh, I forget the exact term, but there's like performativity involved in that yeah. you were creating your own self the way that you would on an Instagram feed, for instance, there's very much that spirit of um, self-curation as an identity. So yeah, that's, and that's again, another way in which uh, techno-capital has certainly influenced um, people's formation of subjectivity itself, which I mean, that's a huge topic. I actually have a book here. Um, the, <laughs> the Age of Surveillance Capitalism talks about that, which I highly recommend people read. Uh, but that's also, um, I don't know, maybe like people, uh, maybe Nick Land is right that te that techno capital is sentient and it will steamroll us and we really don't have a say in the future of the way things develop. I mean, no, I don't know. no, he's, I think he's not right. Um, <laughs> I couldn't get through much of that book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the blockchain one? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm so, I, yeah, the whole bit of the technium and all this, I it was like, mm, man, this complexity. is good drugs. There were some good drugs. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I um, yeah, watch watch Nick Land meltdown. You'll you'll really uh, understand. Um, but yeah, that's oh, that's pretty good. Well, the one thing that I'd say when it comes to the uh, various identities people are acquiring is okay. So let's say you have the identity, but now what is beyond that? What is it that you can offer up in terms of making something that people are interested in? Making so, you know, creating something because that really seems to be an issue i don't even think for the people that would pretend to be into this uh culture but more so even for the person who assumes this new identity if there's not anything that you're contributing to um, you know the discourse or the culture or whatever you want to call it if it's just this is who i am this is what i identify with and people should respect that's so, like okay great great let's respect that but then what else you got you know like that's I think that they would themselves at a certain point not be satisfied with just that. I don't think they'd just be satisfied with saying this is who I am, this is my new identity because you have that, then you have let's say sex, everybody loves sex but then beyond that what else is there? I mean, this is something that we kind of got to with the conversation we had with members of the furry community where uh, we had people, you know, furries, right? Like they put on the fursuits and uh, yes, so... Oh. There's a lot of furries in tech, by the way, Lev. I, I, True. I was surprised to find this True, out. True, yeah. There's a lot of coders who are furries. But it's like beyond just putting on the mascot outfits and like hugging each other and going to the conventions, like 
there doesn't seem to be that much else in there except for this hug box of uh, furrydom and you know all the kinky stuff that also happens which like <laughs> they don't want to identify with that they say like you know like there's more beyond all the sex stuff you think whatever but like what is there beyond like that's what we wanted to know and i don't think having Love, are all... you saying this because kiro the wolf came back oh no don't remind video. me of kiro i don't know what happened with <laughs> kiro the wolf i don't want to get into it right now i mean look maybe maybe the guy's innocent i don't know but the point is is that i and don't it, it's know... funny we're yeah. talking about this too because naomi wolf also got canceled by <laughs> two certain, wolves um, two by wolves certain gender activists <laughs> for her takes on <laughs> oh, boy. inside you there are two wolves Naomi Wolf and Kiro the Wolf. Kiro the Wolf. <laughs> but we have anyway, to clip that love. That'll be a great Twitter. Um, yeah, yeah, yes, so. it would. But anyway, when it comes to people trying to find out what the next big thing, culturally speaking, is, you know, we had these big movements that took people, uh, you know, obviously not everybody, but they took a lot of people of the intelligentsia, various arc movements that happened people within the the intelligentsia were getting into certain things throughout history but now what is really the thing you know everything is so spread out and you could say in a certain way decentralized but another way centralized with the big tech companies but as far as the actual culture goes like what is the promising thing here because i think i'm gonna have to make my own because i'm not really seeing it from anybody who is you know telling people this is my identity and that's it like what is is there even a thought to that within silicon valley or the tech companies as far as what is this thing that can now grip us and get us to you know you know some something that would involve you know more than just self-affirmation something that would speak to some higher truths I think there's, I, I think the, the issue here in trying to answer that is there's so many different channels and platforms where there's a thing, you know, and it, and it's like, which filter bubble are we talking about? You know, are we talking about the filter bubble that we're in with Clubhouse and Twitter and YouTube? We talking about the filter bubble that my neighbor over there who's retired is in, you know, um, like that guy, um, he, he said, he, he said something to my wife the other day, um, and she was she was kind of offended. I'm like, look, man, you know, we're in Texas. If you if I drove up to this guy's house and told him that there were like more than two genders, like he wouldn't know what I was talking about. You know what I'm saying? Like he's just in like some very Texas, you know, filter bubble. And so so there's all you know, there's a whole like just just look at music, man. Everybody, you know, all the Grammys that now it's like, I don't know who any of these people are, right? Nobody knows who any of these people are because they're popular in a different scene. There's the Spotify people, there's the YouTube people, you know, there's there's so many different kind of, everything is fragmented. And so there's no, um, you know, it, there is no zeitgeist. There is no discourse, you know, not not in, a, in as meaningful of a way as there even was 10 years ago. You know, things are just, hmm. are. Hmm. But even though if there are so many of these things, what exactly do 99% of these things have that's, if I'm going to be a snob here and say, worth a damn? Because even in the art community where you have different people who draw, you know, like Tumblr style girls, it's like at a certain point, they all look the same. They're all bland. There's nothing more to say. And uh, that's the thing that... But, but that's the yeah. paradox, Love. It seems that as the ability to... Um, break apart and fragment increases there is still in some ways an implicit sort of 
anti-monoculture, if that makes sense. There's like a weird sort of uh, consensus that people drive back to, even though things are entirely fragmented. Like, for example, we don't really like know about like or even care about a lot of these pop stars nowadays, yet they still have some sort of like zombified cultural appeal for some reason. Like, I, I don't know. It's really weird how things are so fragmented yet at the same time, there is like a, a, uh, a top, a, a canopy top layer of like uh, conformity that people just naturally arrive at, even without realizing. So I don't know. It's really, mm. it's a really strange ergogore that we've unleashed upon the world. And uh, Brian, uh, you had your hand raised. Uh, what do you think, my friend? Brian, wait, I can't hear oh, you right. His audio is not working. Huh? Yeah, that is weird, and he's not even muted right now. So, well, he's going to be getting back to us, but we did have a comment over here. Uh, whoever owns, this is from Godward Podcast, whoever owns the venue controls what culture emerges from the venue. I mean, that is an interesting thing where you would have, let's say, uh, all these different you know bits and pieces scattered around the internet but a lot of them do seem to fall into the same cultural categories because there are people within the pop star world within let's say uh i don't know k-pop twitter world within uh you know the furry world all these different worlds they're still talking about all this identity politics stuff related to you know pronouns and genders and being queer and all this stuff so it doesn't matter if you have a hundred if you have a thousand if you have a million of these different cultures like uh, i think geo was pointing to they're still going to have something that's going to unite them and i wonder if it is kind of uh, and I don't want to be mean here, but it does seem, at least to me, to be going for the lowest common denominator. What do you have to offer if you don't have anything to offer? Well, you know, what what can I do? I can have sex, so, you know, there's like some um, uh, stuff related to kink. And Didn't some... someone mention WAP yeah. in the chat? Is that yeah, the... yeah. I mean, no. I, I mean, it does seem to me to be like the lowest common denominator stuff where... What else? What else is there? It's like everything else requires some pressure, and if there's no pressure, this could be an equivalent of what uh, *Idiocracy* was talking about. I don't know if you guys saw that movie back in the day, but uh, <laughs> that that is that is kind of the other concern. Where before, if people like. I mean, there were always people out there who didn't have that much access to information, people who were living on the farms and, you know, telling the land, all that stuff. But at least their mind was occupied by making sure that, I don't know, the crops, you know, uh, grew in the right way and they had to make they had to busy their mind about the weather, you know, whether there was going to be a storm coming, all these things they had to think about, you know, like, did I collect the eggs from the chickens and all that stuff. But if we're talking about just these hug box societies where people are going to be scattered around yet united by a lot of lowest common denominator culture, that's something that my concern is it's going to have to be managed somehow. It something like that may require some kind of technocracy. If not, like, well, then everything falls apart. If not, but it's like, I I'm concerned about the future of humanity when it comes to that. Maybe my concerns are not as uh, you know relevant. But I'm curious what you think. And also, uh, we uh, Brian has his hand up as well. So uh, let me know what you think about that. And no, I can't hear you right now. I don't know what's going on. 
No, you, there's something weird with the audio. I'm telling you, after that conversation we had, something's something they're they're targeting. Mm. They're targeting Brian. But uh, John, they haven't targeted you yet. You're still on the safe side because you can speak right now. We can still hear your voice. So let us know what you think. Yeah, you know, some people are finding religion. I mean, I I am a Christian, so I you know I kind of already have it there. Um, you know, I see other people in my age group that are, um, but some of the stuff and some people are, you know, they're finding rationalism or, you know, liberalism of different flavors. Um, <clears throat> so it just kind of depends. I mean, I, I do think that there is a, um, a religion shaped hole. It seems that some people, you know, they fill with these different kinds of, you know, kinds of ideologies and kinds of a God -shaped. practices, you know, certain kinds of um, worshipful practices and rituals and I mean look at the standard woke apology if that's not a sacrament or a ritual it's it's very scripted you know I mean I, I don't know what it is you know so so these and these things all follow a template and a format and it's public and you know so people will invent these kinds of re they'll re-implement these kinds of, of, of religion patterns um, in in these different subcultures were you much yeah. involved with the um, the rationalist type of scene, like the Big Yud, uh, Slate Star Code Slater? How do you call them, Slater Codex? <laughs> Slater Codex. I'm just imagining Slater a big Star Slater from Saved by the Bell in front of the banner. But uh, I mean, we um, talked about that in Clubhouse a bit about uh, Scott Alexander and his strategy, and uh, you, you, you agree with me there that there is something to how he approaches it. Yeah, I um I. I am sort of adjacent to, I consider myself kind of rationalist adjacent, but not um, really, I mean, I like most of the rationalists that I know. That's the best I can do is to say that I, I generally like them and get on with them well. And, um, but I don't, uh, I, I, I haven't been enough of a follower of it to, to say one way or the other, you know, what I, what I really think about it. But you know, these are, these are all kind of subcultures that people can go into and take their identity from. And, and in some cases, yeah, a lot of them do have a what's next problem. And, and this is a, this is an old problem. This is actually the, what the, the, okay, what now, what I just did this, what's next, what now, this is why um, Scientology has the high, the operating fate levels, right? This is a sort of classic um, L. Ron Hubbard, um, you know, he, 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 everybody got to like the highest level of clear and then they were like, okay, well now we did all the things, dude, what's next? And so he had to go back and invent like, you know, all these other like more esoteric Dynamics. levels above. <laughs> Well, there, so, are, there are esoteric, uh, also, uh, you know, mystery schools out there, which, uh, mm -hmm. since uh, you talked about uh, the kind of history that you well, study. Well, rationalism's like a mystery school. I mean, the uh, the, the Roscoe's Vasculist, that could be like um, sure. an initiatory thing. But but mm -hmm. I, guess, I guess when you were talking about, like, especially things like uh, mystical Judaism, or you were talking about, like, the Second Temple Judaism, there is a very interesting thing, which I always, like, when I go to Clubhouse and I go into this Shabbat, a Chabad uh, people's uh, streams. I always want to bring it up just because I'm kind of curious what they think. It's like we have a symbol, the Star of David, which has been pre prevalent in uh, Jewish, uh, you know, Jewish life. But it's a very interesting symbol in that originally you could even look this up on Wikipedia. 
uh, it is the Seal of Solomon. So it is literally a magical seal that, according to the legend, was used to uh, conjure up and capture demons, which was like the old way of do playing Pokemon back in the day. So you could say that uh, uh, Solomon, King Solomon, was the original Pokemon master. But uh, it's a very interesting thing that we have these symbols that repeat themselves in, uh, you know, you have in uh, Hinduism, you have the uh, seven chakras, and you have the uh, middle chakra, you know, the heart chakra, also being the combination of heaven and earth, the two triangles, Shiva, Shakti, and you have in Hermeticism, same things. You know, you have all these systems that talk about this, uh, I would describe it as a blueprint of uh, the universe. And it's very interesting that there, like you're talking about everybody needs a religion, um, people still seem to be, despite the internet and despite the ability to like look and compare all these different things, like whenever I bring things up like that to people who are, let's say even to some of the Jewish people, like I just brought that up and uh, they could only comment on what they knew about their religion, but all the other stuff like hermeticism and all that, chakras, completely unrelated, they don't know anything about it, and I've always found it to be very strange, because today we have all this information, and I think we can start making some kind of a bigger picture view on how all these different mystery school systems relate to each other, yet people seem to be kind of digging in their heels on what they already know, and uh, have you had similar kind of talks or experiences with people, and have you also gone on your own journey as far as connecting all all these different pieces together yeah there is a um there is a uh, an interesting analog in what you just said with um you know there was a karen armstrong was big in like the 90s and early 2000s so she was a um sort of self-described scholar of religion and she wrote this book a history of god and um i i did not think the book was very good um it had some problems but she was very popular because she kept writing books about people's religions and she would do this sort of thing of um she had this message of like i see the big picture i can step back all the different religions say similar things and i've synthesized them all you know and and the unitarian universalists do a similar thing you go into uu church and there are symbols from all the different religions and you know i will say that to me um, that feels colonial, uh, you know, to kind of to kind of adopt the wokeism, like to say that you can kind of stand outside these different religious traditions and like unify them um, is a little bit of a power move, you know, it's a little bit of a colonizing power move. So so, but that is that is one that is one thing that people will do. The other is to just like you mentioned with the the Habad people to burrow all the way in further esoteric, like into your own bubble. You know, so um, so as in all things, I think, you know, there's probably a happy medium. Well, colonization is an interesting term here because what comes to mind is the idea of Atlantis, the idea of this ancient civilization that would have had ports and, you know, port cities and different places all around the world that would have been, in a way, a great empire, would, you know, if it existed back in the day. And the idea here is that if we are seeing from the Sumerians, from the Egyptians, all these different things that are pointing to similar symbolism being used for what I consider to be the process of attaining enlightenment, you know, through kundalini activation, all that kind of stuff. So it's interesting to me that you do use the word colonization here, because I do kind of agree with Graham Hancock. I know I'm like a re repeating record here for all the people who have heard this already, but his idea that we are a species with amnesia and that we're 
we're presented with a view of the world that has been uh, kind of decentralized and scattered around, picking different pieces up and creating our idea of what uh, existence is, what the nature of the soul is, whether there is a god or whether there are multiple gods out of these various pieces. But in a way, like, colonization here would apply, like, taking all those, smashing them all up together and creating, like, this one-world religion, which I could see a lot of problems with. I don't want to give anybody, you know, I'm talking about Mr. Beast here. People say he's the Antichrist, but I'm not going to get into that right now. I don't want to give anybody the opportunity to do something like that because I think it's very dangerous. But as far as doing the research and finding out what exactly did happen before, like, I'm very curious about that. What exactly can we find out about the past, about who we are, you know, like there was that incident of that Israeli um, space engineer, like a, a head of um, head of engineering for uh, Israel space program who came out with these uh, comments about how there is this, uh, you know, he's a very well-respected guy. He came out with these comments about how there is this intergalactic federation and they don't think we human beings are ready to get to where they are right now. And, uh, I don't know. It does make me think that uh, he may be right because there is a lot of work to do here on this planet, just the way that we treat each other, the way that our society is. And uh, do you do you have any uh, thoughts in that department as well of the possibility of these federations existing? Is this even something that can be hidden? Because some people say, well, you know, how could you hide something that big while other people talk about compartmentalization? I can never say that word correctly, but you know what I mean. Like there being different compartments of intelligence that would be able to kind of hide these things. But either way, I'm curious if you do have any thoughts on that bigger question of, you know, alien life, what exactly we are and uh, so on and so forth. I, um, I was in a clubhouse room with with Eric Weinstein where he was talking about this and he's like, you know, I used to be a skeptic, but this just with the latest revelations, this feels like a dime that's landed on its side, you know, one too many times. And I thought that was an interesting way to put it. You know, I, I um, that's because it kind of summed up my feeling uh, on not on like more elaborate things like galactic federations, but we actually just um two nights ago watched that that new documentary um the phenomenon which is which is um like the one of the more like respected like mainstream ufo documentaries and i thought it was really good um i thought it was really interesting i had followed the nimitz thing i had followed um you know the thing about the um the underground nuclear bunkers and all this other stuff and you know my uncle actually my 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 uh um late uncle worked for Raytheon and was a Cold War um, defense defense guy. And he later worked on the Patriot missile system and, and stuff like this. And he um, had been around all those, I remember him talking to us about um, the launch, the, the launch, the, the nuclear missile launch guys that manned those posts that he knew and about all the psychological vetting they went through and, and all this other stuff. When I was a kid, you know, he would tell us about this. Um, the guys that that were down there, the launch officers, and he was a he was a firm believer in uh, extraterrestrial life. Now he never made the connection. He never was like, yeah. He never told us any stories of launch officers seeing you know UFOs or anything like is in that documentary and like came out in 2010. But but you know I made the connection later. I was like, yeah, my uncle was um, was a believer and and uh, that we had been visited and was also I knew from a child friends with a lot of those launch officers in the Cold War. 
Um, so there was probably some scuttlebutt around, you know, that kind of crazy stuff. So yeah, I mean, I, I think it's interesting. I don't, I don't have, um, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit agnostic on it because at the end of the day, like it, it doesn't, that's not a button I can push. That's not like a lever I can control. Like if there are aliens, you know, it's like, it's like the thing with solar flares. It's like, you know, I don't know when the sun's going to cook off a new Carrington event. So I'm just going to live my life. And, mm -hmm. you know, I don't go out of my way to prep for that because, uh, you know, I don't know that it's possible. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's like, it just, it's, it lives in the realm of things that are totally exogenous and, you know, that I don't have a control over. So. There was another thing that, uh, uh, Jason Reese of Giorgiani talked about in relation to these uh, UFOs. I mean, this is going on a bit of a tangent, but I just want to share it with you because I find it kind of interesting. The idea that after World War II, there were uh, Nazis who fled into Antarctica and uh, that were there was that whole Operation uh, High Jump with Admiral Byrd where they brought in a whole fleet to Antarctica and supposedly they lost where they had these advanced UFOs. So, uh, I don't know, it's just another way of thinking about it. And I think people are so confused about what exactly is the nature of reality. They jump to little green men or like, you know, greys with those big uh, bulbous heads in the eyes. But when it comes to that whole theory of there being like interdimensional aliens and communication that, let's say, some Nazis may have had back in the day, uh, you know, with the Vril Society or whatever, it's, it's a fascinating thing for me to think about. But at the end of the day, what it drives me to is that our form, like the human form, I think there's something really special about it. And uh, you can even see it just in terms of our sacred geometry, uh, which is different from, I think, a lot of different animals. And my theory, and uh, this is the last thing that I'll say about it, is that I think that there are, instead of these weird Star Trek-looking aliens in different planets, I think that the aliens are us. And that when you go out, you are going to find people who look exactly like we do, and maybe they're taller. You know, there was that whole idea with the Nephilim in the, uh, you know, in the Bible, the giants, as well as in the Sumerian friezes, you have these gods that are much taller than the human beings. You know, the lions would be like this size compared to them. So that's another interesting thing about what is the potential for human beings, our role in here. Are we just an evolutionary accident or is there something more going on to the experience of being human and here geo says oh my god love is going off again yes i am but i guess that would be like the last thing that i want to say about it and uh brian is your audio working or not i want to make sure you can, can you hear me yes i can thank thank yes. god hallelujah hallelujah i thank think my i think my other phone my new phone was dying and it was i don't know allocating energy so i got you're gonna see a little reflection of the old phone with the crack screen. Guys, well, I have to bail. Um, oh, that's too bad because I really wanted to hear more about that. <laughs> well, <laughs> I would, I, oh, John, I would love to have you back again. You are an amazing speaker, and I really appreciate the time that you took to uh, speak with us, especially uh, given our uh, interruption midstream. So I highly appreciate that, and I just want to say that uh, you are amazing, and I wish you the uh, the very best. Thank you, man. Thank yeah, John, you. You're awesome, man. We'll, we'll talk more privately. And John, hey, why don't we do a, maybe I could interview you for my budding tiny little YouTube sometime because I'd love just to exchange ideas. Sure. Uh, we didn't even get into that. I'm surrounded by tech and, and backpacks and so, just because I'm addicted to tactical gear, you know, probably have too much. I hear you. Same, same. All right, cool, man. Nice to meet you. Yeah, likewise. 
Excellent, guys. Right. So this, this is the end of the stream. I really appreciate everybody oh, no. coming in. I'll see if I'll go back to Clubhouse and maybe there will be another like after-party thing there. I'm not sure. I'm going to ask Indian Bronson if he's up, up for that. But anyway, guys, this is it. This is the end of the stream. Thank you so much for watching.